I'm going to tell you a story that my pastor told, and I heard when I was about Calvin's age or Cameron's age, and it really stuck with me. Because it was about some uh, squirrely young guys, right? I mean, not like Calvin or Cameron at all, but, but guys who would get into trouble sometimes. They were brothers, three of them. And whenever something happened, something disappeared, something got egged, everyone knew it was these brothers who did it, and their mother was just beside herself. How do I get through to them that they can't behave this way? So finally, after talking to the school, after reading a lot of books about tough love and things, she said, I'm going to go to the, the pastor. He's a pretty stern, pretty harsh guy, and I think he can really put the fear of God, if you will, in my voice. So she went to him and she said, I don't know what what you might say to them, but something's got to get through to them. And he said, let me think about it. I I will do my best. And the more he thought about it, the more he thought, you know, the idea of human consequences, human authority, human uh, accountability, it, it isn't doing anything for these guys. So instead, I'm going to try and instill in them a reminder, very sternly, that God is always there. Wherever they go, God is there. God is omnipresent. So when the next time they're doing something naughty, one of the three might say to the other two, you guys, God can see us right now. So he, he got all ready, got very stern, got his big Bible out, went down to their house. He said, I'm ready to talk to your boys. She, so she gathered them in. She said, guys, come in here. I need you. They thought, uh-oh, what have we done now? Or rather, what have they discovered now? They sat down at the table, and the pastor stood up with his big Bible, and he said, let me ask you a question. Where is God? And they just looked back at him like, what? So he said louder. Where is God? Again, nothing but just, finally, he bangs his Bible like sometimes pastors do. He says, where is God? And one of them said to the other two, Let's get out of here. It's worse than we thought. God's missing, and they think we did it. <laughs> so stupid. And yet I can't ever forget it. Uh, you know that feeling, that bad feeling when you're caught in the act, and you know that judgment's coming? Well, that's what we read about in Genesis 3. See, there's been the fall. The serpent came, tempted Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the forbidden fruit, and now they have this bad, just, you know, that feeling when my mom, even though she was the harsher disciplinarian, when she really wanted to make me suffer, she'd say, I'm going to tell your father when he gets home, because she knew that the like two and a half hours of waiting for my dad's car to pull in was psychological torture. I mean, she was deep state scary sometimes when I would get way out of hand like that. And, and there's this sense in, in these few verses uh, and then we're going to just read verses 8 and 9. If you've read the story before, I assume you have, of the fall of man in the garden and, and the coming of the curse of sin, that they know dad is coming. They know they're guilty. They know they're caught. And they're about to learn that God is everywhere. Even though in this passage he comes down to find them. Who will read for us just those two verses? Verse uh, 3, 8, and 9. I will. Let's hear it. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? So God comes down in the cool of the day. Literally, the words there are just ruach yom, the breeze of the day, even the breath of the day. Uh, the time when it wasn't too direct sun, beat down hot, when you might go for a nice walk. And it's probably the evening, good time for them to talk and walk with God and talk about today, what we did, to, to talk about how we glorified you in what we did today. And it seems that this is not an unfamiliar situation to Adam and Eve. It's not an unfamiliar sound when God is coming. They don't go, oh no, what is that? Right? It's not like, I, I imagine if you've done something really wrong and you're huddled in your home and you hear the police coming up and, and knocking down your door, that's a jarring sound. That only means one thing. A crime has been committed and they're on to you. But here it's a more familiar sound. And it used to be comforting. God is coming in the cool of the evening and he is going to walk with them as he does every evening. And so this time, they hear the sound, instead of comforting, it's alarming. Hide. Go hide. No way he will hide us if we hide. I don't know. How about behind some plants? That's what we have to work with here. And of course, God is everywhere. And so when we read about God coming in the cool of the evening to walk with them, and God asking questions like, where are you? It, it sometimes trips people up. What we're dealing with is, we, we call it anthropomorphism, when God is said to have uh, characteristics that are kind of a physical body, like his arm is long enough to save and strong, or, or his hands, and God, you know, this sort of thing, the apple of God's eye, uh, or anthropopathism, which is what we were talking about, God having emotions and, and the sort of feelings uh, that, that you and I have. God condescends, which means to come down with. Just like a good mom will get down on the ground with her baby or a good dad and play with them and talk to them on a level that they can understand. God comes down. He has been from the very, very beginning. Ultimately, he does this in Christ, but he's already doing it in Genesis 1 and 2. He comes down in the cool of the evening, and in Genesis 3, he comes down when there has been sin. And of course, we see God appearing in other forms, anthropomorphism, or even other ways. Uh, when he comes to Abram, remember, there are three men. It seems that one of them is, is God, uh, probably a pre-incarnate Christ, uh, not taking on flesh, but appearing to be a man in order to be able to have a conversation uh, with Abraham. Or we think of Moses and the burning bush, that sort of thing. Throughout the scriptures, we find this. God is coming down, and, you know, in the person of Jesus, he shows us the exact representation of God. We see him more clearly than anyone, but Adam and Eve, though they didn't experience that, perhaps had just a close of a connection in their innocence before the fall and in their openness and in God's absolute total self-revelation and self-disclosure. They had a connection with him before it all fell apart here. Now in Christ, of course, we long for that. Even people apart from Christ long for it, which is why when Paul walked around Athens, he could say, I see that you are in always religious. If we could go to the most removed, isolated tribe in the world that hasn't been touched by any Western missionaries or anything at all, we would find them religious, reaching out to, to God. But in Christ, 
we have that connection. Once again, I mean, it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that one of the more famous songs in the uh, Baptist <coughs> hymnal is, I come to the garden alone, right? I come to the garden, he walks with me, he talks with me. That sense of reconnecting with a God who created us in order to connect with him. And so he comes here, and not, not alone. He's not, they're not alone in the garden. It's not Adam and God one-on-one time. Even it's, it's very close communion. And this time, when Yahweh comes, and as is his custom, he says, Adam, Eve, where are you? He knows where they are, by the way, spoiler. But he is letting them come to him. He is being uh, a, a patient, long-suffering creator God. Uh, and in that question, I think it's all wound up in nonverbals what he means. There are certain questions and statements that could mean such a wide variety of things, and it's all in the tone. And you, in, in the scriptures, we don't have the nonverbals, what they say, like 80% of communication is in your nonverbals, your tone. Like if I say, yeah, bright idea, or if I say, bright idea, the very, very different things, right? And in the scriptures, you have to use the context to determine the tone. What is God's tone here when he says, where are you? Some might read it as being very angry. Where are you? You're supposed to be here. I don't like being stood up, right? What are you, what are you doing? Um, and some might see it as being kind of even playful, right? Oh, where are you? Where are you? You could see it as being very sad. Somebody do that one. Where are you? If you think that God is doing this from a whiny, sad point of view, you would not be alone. That is often the way that people uh, interpret this. I wanted to read to you a thing called A Table for Two. It's from the very popular, still more hot youth illustrations for youth talks. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, uh, but <laughs> there are still more hot ones. Um, and I heard this one when I was a youth group member, and then I heard it again and again when I was a youth pastor, and I would bring kids to um, different youth retreats and that sort of thing. All right. <clears throat> he sits by himself at a table for two. The uniformed waiter appears at his side. Would you like to go ahead and order, sir? The man has, after all, been waiting since seven o'clock, almost half an hour. No, thank you, the man says with a smile. I'll wait for a little while longer. How about some more coffee? Certainly, sir. The man sits, his deep brown eyes gazing straight through the flowered centerpiece. He fingers his napkin, allowing the sounds of light chatter, tinkling silverware, and mellow music to fill his mind. Dressed in a sport coat and tie, with his dark brown hair neatly combed, he projects a clean-cut and welcoming image. You get the sense that he wants his companion to feel important, respected, loved, yet he's not so formal as to make one uncomfortable. Having taken every precaution to make sure that others feel at ease with him, still he sits alone. The waiter returns to fill the man's coffee cup. Is there anything else I can get for you, sir? No, thank you. The waiter remains standing at the table. Something tugs at his curiosity. I don't mean to pry, but his voice trails off. This line of conversation could jeopardize his tip, if not his job. 
Go ahead, the man encourages. His voice is strong, yet sensitive, inviting conversation. Why do you bother waiting for her? The waiter finally asks. This man has been at the restaurant other evenings, always alone, always patient, because she needs me. Are you sure? Yes. Well, sir, no offense, sir, but assuming that she needs you, she sure isn't acting much like it. She's stood you up three times just this week. The man winces and looks down. Yes, I know. Then why do you still come here and wait? Cassie said she'd be here. She said that before, the waiter protests. I wouldn't put up with it. Why do you? Now the man looks up at the waiter with a smile. Because I love her. The waiter walks away, wondering how he could love a girl who stands him up three times a week. The man must be crazy, he decides. From across the room, he turns to look again at the man, who is pouring cream into his coffee cup. He twirls his spoon between his fingers a few times before stirring sweetener into his cup. Jesus would do it. After staring for a moment into this liquid, the man brings the cup to his mouth and sips, silently watching those around him. He doesn't look crazy, the waiter admits to himself. Maybe the girl has qualities that I don't know about. Or maybe the man's love is stronger than most. Pulling himself out of his musings, the waiter moves to take an order from a party of five. Setting down his coffee cup, the man recalls the many things he wanted to talk over with Cassie. But really, he was mostly looking forward to hearing her voice, telling him about her day. Her triumphs, her defeats, anything. Yes, she's stood him up before, but he still can't get used to it. Each time it hurts. He's looked forward to the evening all day. He's tried so many times to show Cassie how much he loves her. He'd just like to know that she cares for him, too. He sips sporadically at the coffee. He hopes Cassie may yet arrive. The clock says 9.30 when the waiter returns to the man's table, still with one empty chair. Anything I can get for you? No, I think that will be all for tonight. May I have the check, please? Yes, sir. When the waiter leaves, the man picks up the check. He pulls out his wallet. He has enough money to have given Cassie a feast, but he takes only enough to pay this for his five cups of coffee and the tip. Why do you do this, Cassie? His mind cries as he gets up from the table. Goodbye, the waiter says as the man walks toward the door. Good night. Thank you for your service. You're welcome, sir, says the waiter softly, for he sees the hurt in the man's eyes that his smile doesn't hide. The man passes a laughing young couple on his way out, and his eyes glisten as he thinks of the good time he and Cassie could have had. He stops at the front and makes reservations for tomorrow. Maybe Cassie will be able to make it then, he thinks. Seven o'clock for a party of two, the hostess confirms. That's right, the man replies. Do you think she'll come, the hostess inquires tentatively. She doesn't mean to be rude, but she has watched the man many times alone at his table for two and has no sense of customer service or boundaries. Someday, yes, and I will be there waiting for her. The man buttons his overcoat and walks out of the restaurant alone. His shoulders are hunched, but through the wind, the hostess can only guess whether they are hunched against the wind or against the man's hurt. About the time the man steers his car out of the restaurant's parking lot, Cassie falls into her bed, tired after an evening out with friends. She reaches toward the nightstand to set her alarm. Oh, shoot, she says aloud when she sees the note she had scribbled to herself the previous night. 7 o'clock p.m., and what did I write here? Oh, yeah, spend some time in prayer. Well, I'll do it tomorrow night for sure. Besides, she told herself, she needed t tonight with her friends, and now she needs her sleep. Tomorrow night will be fine. Jesus will forgive her. She's sure he doesn't mind. Now, it was very important to me find the exact wording because it literally reminds me. You know when you hear something that you heard or, or encountered at a particular point in life? 
that fills me with crazy guilt. Like I remember hearing that and, and that picture would come to my mind because for me, that is the saddest thing in the world. Aaron will tell you I cannot deal with in a television show or a movie. If there's a scene, especially where someone like makes a big dinner and then is waiting and the person doesn't show up. Like Mr. remember Mr. Mom? He like he's trying to do good and he like makes this big dinner, he lights the candles and then he's just waiting and waiting. I, I like get real anxiety and I feel like he's not even real. Michael Keaton's fine, but I get so, so sad. Or in real life, one time Aaron and I were in uh, Detroit and there was a guy sitting in like the, the square in a suit holding a dozen roses, just looking down at his feet like obviously something sad had happened or someone didn't show up. And I like brought it up. I'm still bringing it up today once in a while. I'll be like, man, remember that guy? It's so, so sad. And when I think that I might have done that to Jesus, it makes me just, oh, sick. But that is not the way the Bible wants us to approach spending time with our Savior. The idea that sad Jesus knocking at the door is waiting and waiting for hours on end, getting sadder, he's lonely, he needs me, if I don't show up, I've ruined his night once again, is utterly unbiblical. And it misses a very, it misses the very nature of God. One of God's perfections is that he is perfectly happy. He is self-contained, he is self-sustained, and within the Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity have for eternity past uh, been content with acts of self-giving love, loving one another. God doesn't need me. He didn't create mankind because he was lonely. He created mankind to glorify himself and so that we could enjoy him, not because he needed some pets or something or a hobby, and, and, I mean, think about, I mean, there's a very similar parable that's told two different versions in the Gospels about Jesus um, talking about God the Father being kind of stood up, right? He's got this wedding feast, sends out tons of invites. Again, nothing, dude, I, I hear a story about, like, a kid uh, having a, a birthday party and, like, no one shows up. My day is ruined. Like, th that's it. I don't even want, I, I, no, I, that's so sad. But there's this notion that, Instead of getting super angry, what happens? Luke 14, Matthew 22. He says he goes and gets other people. Right, in Luke 14, he says, you know what? Forget those jokers. Highways, byways, get everybody. This place will be full, and we will have a party, and everyone's going to be happy. I mean, not the people who miss out on it, but, you know, the, the guys who will go, me? Really? Me? You want me in your home? They'll be very happy. Or in Matthew 22, there's a little twist to it. Uh, when he sends out people, more people to say, you know, it's time to come to the party. What happens? They beat the guys up. And so the king sends armies to destroy them and burn their city to the ground. What doesn't happen is that he doesn't go, you know, sit down and in the shower like Tobias Funke or something, <laughs> crying and weeping and, and sorrowful. Like, yeah? Right, right, not like Peter Parker at all. Now, not to say that God is not saddened by us neglecting him or by our rebelling against him. Surely we see that he is in the scriptures. But when we are motivated to spend time in prayer, to spend time in his word, to come and gather with his people, the least biblical motivation, I think, could be this sense of 
low-grade guilt that's always with us. Now, Baptists can do it. Every denomination thinks they're Catholics tell me, oh, no, we're guilt people. And, uh, you know, here, uh, I've heard Jewish people tell me that, too. We're, we're really into guilt. Well, the, the fact of the matter is that we often resort to that because it's easy. Now, make sure you're here because if you're not here, blah, blah, blah. We're going to make God very sad. Jesus, we don't want to make Jesus sad, do we? For us, after the cross, as it was for Adam and Eve before the fall, it's neither fear nor guilt that draws us to spend time with our Lord. It's a draw that comes from deep within the very fabric of who we are because that's what we were created to do. To love God, to glorify Him, to enjoy Him forever to know him, to serve him. This is what we want to do. Just like when Adam and Eve, the day before the fall, in the cool of the day, in the breeze of the day, said, oh yeah, now's about the time when God comes and walks with us. They didn't go, oh man, we got to go walk with him now because otherwise he'll be angry or otherwise he'll be sad and, and he'll be all passive aggressive for the next couple of weeks. No, all they wanted was to walk with him, to, to go and, and walk with him and talk with him in the garden. This is what we were created to do. This is the very first question of our catechism. It's the, it's the very core of our understanding of who we are and who God is. He's not pathetically waiting. He hasn't been stood up, but he does want to spend time with you. Sure, it's good for us, and that's often what we emphasize, right? Well, if I don't do my devotions in the morning, my whole day is off the rails. I hear that all the time. Or when I do pray, I'm very focused and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's all well and good, sure. But the real reason is not for us. The real reason we should want to spend time with him is because he wants to. And that is mind-blowing. He wants to come and be with us. Now, where is God? Where is God? He's everywhere. But only when we seek him and give him our attention and give him our time and spend intentional time seeking his face in scripture, pouring our hearts out in prayer, only then do we truly find him. Yes, God's everywhere. He's, he's all, he, was, he was right there in Ferris Park when someone shot people the other night. Doesn't mean he was being glorified. Doesn't mean there was any communion happening. Yes, he's everywhere. He's here in this church. But even in church, unless we truly are gathered in his name to do his will, he's not truly connecting with us, nor are we with him. But remember, St. Paul said to those in Athens, he's not far from any of us. You can reach out and you can grab him. And how much more true is that for Christians who've been reconciled to him by the blood of Jesus? God is everywhere, which means that anywhere you are, you can... You can just reach up and touch him. Remember that old, what was that, MCI? What an old-timey thing to even think about. MCI, AT&T, and MCI. MCI was reach out and touch someone, right? Or was that AT&T? One of those. That was the phrase. Well, you can reach out and literally anywhere you are, you can touch God. You can feel his touch. You can connect to him. In, in the cool of the evening, like Adam and Eve, it's a good time. In the morning when his mercies are new, every morning, before the day begins, in the afternoon when you're really stressed, late at night when you can't sleep, all are good times to talk to God. He wants to hear from us. He wants to commune with us. 
Don't be motivated by guilt and shame. Don't be motivated by fear that he'll be angry. Rather, be motivated by a desire to, to have real time with him. I know I've had a number of times where I've had to reassess in my life kind of, is this person who I think of as my friend really still my friend? I mean, we're not enemies now, but are we really close friends anymore? Because we see each other once a year now or twice a year, or it's a phone call here or there. And it's easy to say, well, yeah, of course, we're, we're close. But if we're not putting in a time, we're not close. We're fooling ourselves. In the same way, those of us who follow Jesus, even people who come to church week after week, it's easy to fall into a pattern of, oh, yeah, I'm close. He's important to me. But are we putting in the time out of a desire to commune with our Creator? And if you don't feel the desire, just pray for it. That's a prayer that he will answer, I promise.